Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 6th, 2010, and my guest is Douglas Irwin, the Robert E. Maxwell Class of 23 Professor of Arts and Sciences at Dartmouth College. Doug, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. Our topic today is the mysterious way that monetary policy, and in particular the gold standard, contributed to or caused the Great Depression. And the underappreciated role, and this is something of a detective story that you've uncovered, the underappreciated role that France played in that complex series of interactions called the world economy in the post-World War I era. Here's the opening paragraph of the recent paper you did on the topic, and we'll put a link up to that paper. Quote, a large body of economic research has linked the gold standard to the length and severity of the Great Depression of the 1930s. The gold standard's fixed exchange rate regime transmitted financial disturbances across countries and prevented the use of monetary policy to address the economic crisis. This conclusion is supported by two compelling observations. Countries not on the gold standard managed to avoid the Great Depression almost entirely, while countries on the gold standard did not begin to recover until after they left it. Uh, Talk about, to start with, uh, what some of those countries were uh, that that weren't on the gold standard or that uh, left it uh, at various times. Sure. Um, There are two uh, good examples of countries that were not on the gold standard during this period, and while they suffered recessions because their trading partners went into the Depression, they themselves did not see the great deflation and the great rise in unemployment and the great reduction in output that most countries uh, experienced during the Great Depression. So those two countries are China, which was on a silver standard, and Spain, which I believe was on a fiat money standard, uh, had not yet gotten its act together again to get back on the gold standard after World War I. And both of those countries uh, you know, did reasonably well uh, through the early 1930s uh, as other countries were imploding. And the countries that left it and started to recover, they, were, they left it at different times, of course. Exactly. And so um, you know, most countries were on the gold standard by 1928, 1929, and then they began to peel off at various times. And they all sort of went uh, down at the same uh, point in time. Roughly the business cycle peak for most countries was in mid-1929, but uh, because of the pressures of deflation and rising unemployment, uh, that put pressure on various countries to leave at various points in time. And uh, sort of Australia uh, and Argentina left in late 1929. Um, Britain uh, pulled off in September of 1931 and pulled about 18 other countries along with it, Scandinavia and some of its colonies or former colonies. Uh, Then the U.S. left in April of 1933. Then Belgium left sometime in 1935. And then France and uh, the remainder of what was known as the gold bloc, which had stuck on the gold standard for the longest period of time, they left in uh, late 1936. And what's nice is this time variation uh, gives us sort of a way of identifying, you know, what was the impact of going off the depression, uh, going off the gold standard. And, uh, um, you know, this is not work that I've done. Uh, Barry Eichengreen and Jeff Sachs have a famous paper on this. There's some earlier work uh, and then a lot of follow-up work on, you know, what was the uh, economic impact of going off gold, and it allowed countries to pursue more reflationary monetary policies, they were able to stabilize their banking systems, and the economy began to recover as prices rose. And so, for example, in the United States, uh, we went off in April 1933. It was one of the first decisions that uh, FDR uh, put in place when he became president, and that really I, – I think that's just about the trough, right? Absolutely, yep. You see industrial production bouncing back. You see uh, wholesale prices begin to recover. Um, you know, There's really sort of a V right around uh, April 1933. So one of the issues that's going to run through this conversation, and we'll, we'll try to bounce back and forth between these two points, um, monetary policy underlies to a large extent the modern economy, uh, but there's all these real things going on also that are not monetary, and it's sometimes hard to disentangle them. It's also hard sometimes to know how important one is relative to the other. So in 1933, a whole bunch of other stuff was going on, of course, 
uh, as FDR tried to get the economy going. Uh, but it may be that the gold standard decision was the single most important thing he did. Absolutely. And I know you've had uh, podcasts on the New Deal and the NRA and all those things. And, um, you know, obviously that, that's a very mixed bag of, of policies, some of them very counterproductive, certainly the NRA. And you just wonder if they had pushed this earlier if, uh, and they had pushed monetary policy harder in 1933 um, and we had been able to accelerate the recovery, maybe all those other policies, uh, you know, you wouldn't have had to try those. So, you know, whenever people ask me, was the New Deal a good thing or a bad thing, you know, it's a, a, it's a potpourri of a, very, a lot of policies, and some good, some bad, some ugly. Certainly the, the best thing they did was to try to change the stance of monetary policy, get off the gold standard. All the other stuff, I suspect, was largely secondary, if not counterproductive. So to, to set the stage for this um, mysterious role that France played, which is utterly um, fascinating and extraordinary, and, and I, I want to emphasize that over the course of this hour, we're, we're also going to come to the present and talk about some of the implications for the crisis that we're in now. But we, to set the stage for thinking about how France might have contributed, something I had never heard of uh, that you've now done some very nice work on that we're going to talk about, talk about how the gold standard itself worked because it's something that I think a lot of people are uh, unclear about. They find it intimidating. And so let's talk about the the gold standard was suspended during World War I. In the post-war era, uh, it was put back in place, as you say, for most countries, not every one of them, but almost all countries around the world. Uh, what did that mean? What does it mean to say that a country was on the gold standard? What essentially it means is that uh, your monetary base and the stance of your monetary policy is dictated by how, much, how many gold reserves are held by the central bank. So um, if the central bank's gold reserves are increasing – uh, and it has more and more gold in its vaults, it can issue more currency and uh, uh, sort of expand the money supply. If the country is losing uh, gold reserves, uh, then it has to sort of raise interest rates, tighten monetary policy to prevent that gold outflow, and, uh, and pursue sort of more contractionary policies. So why is, there, really, why is there a connection between how much gold they have and how, how much money they're issuing or, or, or why they have to respond with interest rates and all that? What's the essentially, with the gold standard, uh, the central bank is obligated to, top, to exchange domestic currency in terms of a certain amount of gold. So, and, and when other countries do that, the, the exchange rates across countries become fixed. So the pound-dollar uh, exchange rate will be fixed because both countries are linked to a certain quantity of gold. And to maintain that fixed exchange rate, you have to adjust your monetary policy to ensure that it always holds. Um, otherwise, there's going to be pressure on you, whether you're going to be accumulating a lot of reserves or losing a lot of reserves. And it all actually goes back to David Hume's uh, price-specie flow mechanism in his famous 1752 essay on money, where he sort of talks about, um, you know, uh, when countries are on a metallic standard, uh, monetary policy is dictated by uh, flows of gold across countries. So let's, let's back up and explain that in a little more detail. So in particular, why... Uh, an adherence to the gold standard requires a um, – leads to a fixed exchange rate and, and the implications for central bank policy. So we're back in the mid-20s now. Uh, there's a certain promise that the Bank of England has made that if you bring in a pound, you're going to get a certain amount of gold in return. And as a result, they have to have a certain amount of gold sitting in the vault because people can come in and get it. They don't, they don't want to run out. Exactly. Uh, why not? Well, if people <laughs> began to think that they were running out, um, that would actually uh, cause a, a speculative attack against the currency because, uh, you know, if you're just holding a, a pound note, a piece of paper, you don't know what the, the value or the worth of that paper is. Uh, under a metallic standard, supposedly you trust the paper because you know there's a certain amount of gold behind it and you can use uh, gold to buy goods or gold to buy other currencies. And so if you begin to think the country is losing gold reserves and, and the, the credibility of that um, ability to, to exchange your paper for gold is br uh, brought into question, uh, you might say, gee, I better, you know, for safekeeping, get that gold now and exchange this paper because uh, if nothing happens, I can always get the paper back again. But if something does happen, at least I've got the gold, not just this pe worthless piece of paper. And one reason that countries really wanted to get back on the gold standard 
um, to provide sort of the stability for the currency is that uh, Germany had had hyperinflation after World War I. Um, a lot of countries had very high rates of inflation when their currencies became untethered to gold. So there's something uh, that uh, Barry Eichengreen and Peter Temin called the gold standard mentality of this period, that if your uh, currency was not tied to gold, uh, you're going to have, you know, uh, the central bank will just sort of print, run the printing presses and you'll have uh, inflation or hyperinflation. So gold standard is a discipline that the central bank imposed on itself, uh, that the authorities, the politicians imposed on, the, on, on themselves. Because basically the reason you couldn't run the printing press is that if you did, people would start to get worried that there was too much, too many pieces of paper out there for how much gold you were holding. So if you ran the printing press without additional gold stocks, you increase the risk that people would have that speculative run, correct? Absolutely, yep. So it's a disciplining device to exactly prevent that. Now, uh, you could also argue that uh, exchanging your ultimately worthless piece of paper with a politician, a dead politician on it uh, for a yellow metal isn't really that much more <laughs> comforting. But part of the reason that the gold standard was actually not just a second leap of faith was that there are things. It's, it's the fact that there are uses for gold independently of um, wallpapering your wall with former with, do, with dollar bills, right? Yep, and also the fact that uh, you can't sort of inflate gold away. So unless we sort of have the you know California gold rush or discover this enormous uh, gold mine that we hadn't known before, the value gold is sort of going to keep its value. It may fluctuate in price a bit, but you can't uh, uh, run up the supply of it like you can run a printing press. So there was some confidence in its long-term inherent value. So now let's talk about that. We just talked about a, a single country, England. Now let's talk about how England's made a promise to its citizens that it would really like to keep because the consequences of not keeping it are not, not good. So they made a promise that says if you bring a pound to the central bank, we'll exchange it for gold. The U.S. has made a similar promise uh, if you bring a dollar bill uh, to – the central bank will exchange it for gold, and they've picked an exchange, a gold-dollar ratio. Uh, why does that imply a relationship between the dollar and the pound, the fixed exchange rate that you mentioned earlier? Um, it's sort of because uh, you know if each uh, currency is, is pegged to a certain amount of gold, then sort of by uh, sort of triangular arbitrage, it implies something about the, the price of pounds in terms of the price of dollars and what have you. So as long as everyone is sort of connected to, to a certain amount of gold, um, that implies that all those bilateral fi- exchange rates are going to be fixed unless countries change sort of their gold parity. So give me an example of what would happen uh, to one country's – if one country changes its – tries to print a little more money, what's that going to do? What's going to be the – interactions between the different currencies as that happens? What that will do is if one country sort of uh, violates the rules of the gold standard or tries to push it by printing more money, um, you know, things are going to heat up. Prices are going to rise in that country uh, because of inflation. Uh, That will begin to price out its exports because uh, exports are going to be less competitive on world markets. Uh, The prices of foreign goods for that country will be a little bit cheaper because those prices haven't gone up. And the country will begin to run a trade deficit. Its exports will sort of go down relative to its imports. Then the only way the country can finance that in the absence of capital flows is by gold flows. So, uh, and then the gold will begin to leave that country. And that puts uh, sort of the sort of reins the central bank in saying, whoops, you can't really expand the money supply as fast as you thought. Gold is leaving. And uh, that's going to cause you to, or, or sort of force you to reduce the rate of monetary growth. Uh, maybe raise interest rates to stop the gold from going out and sort of bring you back into equilibrium. So going back to that triangular arbitrage, if um, if someone in England sells uh, a good in America, that British exporter now holds a dollar. He can do two things with it, right? He can take it to the central bank in America for gold or he yep. can swap it for pounds. And yep. those – the fact that the pound rate is fixed per in gold and the dollar rate is fixed in gold means that the dollar-pound exchange rate is going to be determined by those those ratios as well. Is that the right way to say it? Yep, that's that's exactly it. So 
what um, the 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 standard way I was taught this in in uh, in graduate school is that when you have this fixed exchange rate regime uh, and a gold standard, your domestic monetary policy is highly limited. Unlike, exactly. right? So go ahead, talk about that. Uh, well, what for exactly sort of the, the example we were just going before, a country can't get away with just printing money because the gold will start leaving the country, and then either it's going to have to sever that previous uh, relationship between the, the paper currency and gold, or it's going to have to sort of tighten up its monetary policy to stop and undo what it just did. So it really is sort of a handcuff device on the central bank um, unless they violate the rules. And, of course, when we look at developing countries today and they try to keep their exchange rates fixed, they're not really on a gold standard, but they'll peg their currency, say, to the dollar. Um, you know, sometimes they don't uh, adhere to that strict discipline, and then they're forced to devalue or there's a speculative attack on their currency, such as happened to Mexico um, in 1995 or, uh, or 1994, it was, I believe, um, you know, some Asian countries in the late 90s and what have you. Uh, so, once again, they're... they're in the 1920s, it was, it was gold was sort of considered the central asset, and so countries were tying their monetary policies to gold. So let's talk about what we're, we're going to shortly be talking about what was very bad about the gold standard. Let's start by talking about what was good about it, um, why anybody would, would tie their hands this way. Obviously, uh, world gold production, as you point out, barring a, a new – not just discovery of a gold mine, but a massive supply – which happened a couple times. It happened in when the New World got linked to the Old World. Uh, it happened in the late 1840s in the United States and California. But in general, through the most of the modern era, the amount of gold supply in the world is rising at a slow and fairly predictable rate, which means two things. One was you got world price stability, that there wasn't a lot, big swings in, in domestic prices. And also these stable exchange rates allowed importers and exporters to plan for the future in ways that were likely not to change a lot. Does that, does that summarize it? Yep, and that's one reason why sort of the world economy you know, did pretty well in the late 19th century, uh, sort of the late Victorian period. Um, that was a big era of globalization. There was a lot of labor mobility across countries. Capital was mobile because of the uh, gold standard and the fixed exchange rate. It facilitated trade flows, as you suggested, because... There was very little uncertainty about what exchange rates were going to be uh, the next year or so. And so it really sort of, uh, you know, allowed for a smoothly functioning world economy. Now, some people were... Provided a lot of price stability around the world and what have you. And everything looked great. But as, as you point out in your paper, some people started to worry that if gold production declined or grew more slowly than the world economy, we might get deflation. Uh, that would be one worry. What are... Explain that and also explain what other things – what other negatives were there about the gold standard uh, before we get into some of the policy errors? Um, right. So there's this uh, Swedish economist uh, who is actually one of the most famous economists in the world in the 1920s, Gustav Kassel. And uh, he had studied this for some time and, and noted that uh, you know, we really needed world gold production to grow at about 3% a year or so to ensure price stability. And the reason uh, – why he sort of found that number of 3% is that's sort of the average rate of growth of, of output around the world um, in terms of productivity and, and uh, labor uh, supply expansion, what have you. And uh, if you uh, had growth rates in the supply of gold less than that, then you're not keeping up with sort of the transactions demand for gold. And that will put downward pressure on prices. And in fact, uh, you might recall in the uh, uh, 1890s, there's a big controversy in the United States about monetary policy. And William Jennings Bryan uh, thought that, uh, you know, the money supply wasn't growing uh, uh, rapid enough, interest rates were too high, and he said, uh, you will not crucify us on this cross of gold and actually want to get the U.S. off the gold standard because there was price deflation uh, in the early 1890s until, I believe it was uh, big discoveries in Australia, began to increase the supply of gold uh, more than 3%, and then so we had a, a rise in worldwide inflation, very modest, modest one, but uh, from the mid-1890s or so. And so if the, the world supply of gold is growing more than 3%, Castle noted, then uh, say 5%, 6%, 7%, then that's more gold than you need to sort of uh, finance trade and economic activity. And so that's going to put upward pressure on prices. 
Can you explain that? to get inflation. Doug, explain why if um, gold discoveries are growing, why does that have anything to do with prices? Doesn't that just make gold cheaper? I mean, wh- why is it what, – what's going on in the central bank story that we've been telling? Explain that. Ah, you're absolutely right. It does make gold cheaper uh, because there's a greater abundance of gold. There's more gold around. But because, uh, once again, it gets back to that gold parity, the nominal price of gold is fixed. So the nominal price of gold cannot go up or down. So in that case, you might think the price of gold should fall because there's a greater abundance of gold. But when the nominal price of gold is fixed, it can't go down. The prices of all other goods adjust. And the way that uh, you get a fall in the relative price of gold is the price of other goods has to go up, and that's inflation. Why does that have to happen? What's going on at the, in that central bank window story that we told earlier? Well, once again, uh, you know, the central bank, maybe its gold reserves are used to uh, or normally grow at about 3%. And now all of a sudden, let's say there's a 10% increase in uh, the gold, gold reserves of a given central bank. And it's not just one central bank, but it's a whole bunch of central banks because there's just a lot more gold in the world. But why, does that, that increase, why does that increase their holdings? There's more gold in the world. What? I'm a central bank. I'm the central bank of England or I'm the central bank of the United States. Somebody finds a whole bunch of gold in Australia. That's not yeah. in my central bank. What's that have to do with me? So what will happen is, is, is gold is not sort of the uh, easiest medium of exchange. Uh, you typically don't pay your workers in gold. You don't uh, buy goods in terms of gold. So you want to exchange that gold. You want to get the paper currency because then you can pay your workers in the gold mine. You can pay your servants. You can pay for uh, products that you want to buy. So all that gold eventually will get into the, the, the uh, uh, central uh, bank reserves because people actually want paper to make economic transactions. And so that's how it sort of ends up in the central bank uh, res- uh, gold vaults. Are they literally bringing gold to the central bank? Yep. So say in South Africa, which was a big gold producer at that time, um, you know, they'd mine the gold in South Africa. They would uh, ship it to Britain in exchange for British pounds. Um, or the, the central bank of, uh, I, I'm not sure that South Africa at that time, uh, which I'm not sure was independent, had a central bank, but somehow it would be linked to the London financial market. They'd want to secure that gold somewhere. They don't just want to have it uh, you know, in their uh, firm's vault. They want to put it in someplace secure so they'll give it to the central bank for safekeeping. But doesn't the central bank, what if the central bank just holds on to it? You know, obviously a larger gold stock lets them print more money if they want. Right. Which would have inflationary assets. I'm just trying to help listeners understand and myself how that, you know, you made the statement, which we as economists make all the time, well, the price of gold had to fall. What's the actual, what's going on? Well, um, actually, you're getting to a good point there, uh, and which will bring us to our France story, is that what happens if a central bank gets more gold but decides not to print more money? Well, then you're really not playing by the rules of the gold standard game. Uh, that's known as sterilization. Uh, where you're taking some sort of offsetting action, you're not monetizing the gold that you have in your bank vaults. And actually, that plays a big part of the, in terms of the story of the Great Depression, both in the United States and France, as we'll get to. But sort of the, the, the standard rules of the gold standard game were, if you gain gold reserves, you have to print more money. If you lose gold reserves, you have to sort of pull back in terms of how much uh, money and credit you can issue. And so that's, you get this very tightly... Uh, close-knit uh, relationship between money and gold. But once again, countries could deviate from that, and we'll see in a few minutes, I think, how that could potentially lead to problems. Do you want to say anything else about um, sort of well-understood problems with the gold standard in, in throughout its, its, its time where people worry about? We mentioned one, uh, Cassell's worry that the gold production would slow and for, impose deflation then on the world economy through the mechanism we just talked about, but in reverse. Um, were there, uh, what other policy challenges are there to, for a country that's on the gold standard? The, policy, the main policy challenge is that by losing an independent monetary policy, you're sort of tying the short-term fate of your economy to the amount of gold in the world. And that's sort of an odd thing to do. So if a country, for example, has a, a recession due to a crop failure or what have you, um, it's going to, uh, 
you know, it, it can't sort of uh, accommodate that or uh, grease the, the wheels of commerce through monetary policy. It's going to endure, uh, uh, you know, very tight monetary policies, higher interest rates, and, and the loss of gold reserves. So it, it's, it takes away from government authorities a potential adjustment mechanism that might make things easier. And we can, and, you go ahead. No, and, and so, you know, uh, and well, when we get to the Great Depression, we'll sort of see that, that countries couldn't, for example, uh, cut interest rates and ease monetary policy when you're on the gold standard in the face of, uh, of this economic contraction. So it's, uh, it, it's really saying that uh, the fate of your country is tied to uh, how much gold there is in the world. And, um, you know, maybe uh, what happens if there's a, a strike in South Africa so uh, there's not going to be as much gold production? That's going to have a big impact on your economy um, just because you're tied to gold. Uh, you know, if people are thinking about, well, maybe we need a gold standard today, well, what that's saying is that we're going to tie our monetary policy to events in Russia and South Africa, the two major gold producers. And is there any reason why we'd want to do that um, rather than have monetary policy in our own hands? I can think so, of a few reasons, but, yeah. <laughs> but right? It's a trade-off. That, that's the issue. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Monetary policy uh, with, with open hands has been an abject failure in many, many countries where, where the discipline has totally failed, uh, yep. Zimbabwe being an obvious example. To, you know. I was thinking of that exactly myself, yes. Um, and, but just here in the United States where we supposedly have such a great uh, set of economists and, and wise policymakers and a democratic process, a lot of people have indicted – Monetary policy between say o two and o four for precipitating the current mess we're in. So, uh, I, there is a trade off. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk. So, what are the issues? That, the, the key thing you just said, which I, which is, which is so important, is you, you're stuck with the world gold supply, which would make you think that well, if there isn't that strike in the, in South Africa or Russia, or if there isn't a new giant discovery that is going to change things, things should be pretty smooth. But what you point out is that countries on their own can do some things that um, cause problems that are not just some natural change in the physical supply of gold. Right. So the big shock, um, of course, uh, between what happened in the uh, um, 1920s and 1930s and sort of the pre-World War I gold standard was you know, World War I, where most countries went off the gold standard they experienced very high rates of inflation, and then the question was after the war, you know, how do we get back to the gold standard? That was sort of the objective of most countries around the world. How do we get back, restore monetary discipline, get back on the gold standard? And the, the price level had risen a lot, so uh, countries were faced with the issue of, well, do we try to bring prices back down to the way they were before the war, or do we just change, accept that inflation? and say the price level has gone up, and we need a new exchange rate between our domestic currency and, um, and gold. Just add a zero or two or three or seven. Exactly, <laughs> depending right. Depending on what country you're yep. in. Or, yeah, or do we try to really retract, you know, pull that money out of the system, get prices back, and then have exactly the exchange rate we had in 1913 or 1914? Uh, Britain decides to do the latter. That is, they decide to deflate prices and get them back down to um, you know, where they were before the war and then go back on the gold standard at the pre-war rate, um, which is all right in principle, except when they went back on gold, and this was uh, Winston Churchill's decision as uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, prices actually hadn't gone all the way back down. So when they went, got back on the gold standard, uh, the, the price of British goods relative to goods in the rest of the world was a bit too high, which meant they'd have to suffer some more deflation to get uh, prices back down. And John Maynard Keynes uh, wrote a pamphlet, uh, The Economic Consequences of Mr. Churchill, where he excoriated that decision, saying, you know, either we should have adjusted the exchange rate a bit or we should have, you know, gradually gotten the prices back down before we got back on the gold standard. He, he sort of ident identified that as being uh, uh, an unwise policy move. So that was Britain. That was Britain. France had a, a much more inflation than Britain, and they said, well, you know, we, we can't deflate prices. That's sort of a, a, a deflation is not a, an easy process. So we're just going to change the exchange rate. And what they also did is say, well, we're also going to not just adjust the exchange rate to the extent to which our prices have changed, but we'll make it a, a, do a little bit more. In other words, we're going to undervalue the French franc, which will make uh, French goods very price competitive on world markets, make imports seem much more expensive to French consumers, and we'll be able to run a trade surplus 
uh, in that way. But I thought they and, couldn't. I thought they couldn't adjust their exchange rate. They were stuck with what the market would produce through the arbitrage we talked about earlier. Well, when they're not on the uh, when they weren't on the gold standard, uh, they they're basically choosing what pri- at what exchange rate should they go back on the gold standard. Actually, I, I, yeah, I, I confused. I got confused. The key question was, what rate would they exchange francs for gold, which in turn would set an, a, ra- a rate of exchange, say, between francs and pounds? Correct? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yep. So they picked uh, a rate of exchange for gold and francs that implied a relatively attractive rate between pounds and francs for their exporters and therefore a relatively unattractive rate for Britain's exporters in France. Exactly. So what should have happened, or what did happen? Well, what did happen is that um, what that would lead to is Britain would have trade deficits. Uh, France would have a trade surplus because they they could export a lot, but they wouldn't want to buy a lot of expensive foreign goods. Um, Britain would have to finance its trade deficit by sending gold to France. So gold would travel from Britain to France. Britain would have more contractionary, more a tighter monetary policy. And because it was attracting gold, France could then have a more expansive, expansionary monetary policy. And once again, what that would do is, as David Hume said a long time ago, before even Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, is that, well, when France gets more gold, it's going to have to print more money, and that's going to raise prices and that will begin to automatically correct the trade uh, imbalance. So that was the natural uh, mechanism that the gold standard had in mind if a country tried to pick a bad rate of, of exchange of francs for gold. Exactly. There would be this natural uh, equilibrating mechanism through the flow of uh, a specie across countries. And so you know, it might persist for a little bit, but as the gold flowed in that direction, uh, British prices would fall, French prices would rise, and then things would go back to equilibrium. But it didn't work that way didn't work that way. And that's because uh, of a point that you made just a little bit uh, earlier. What happens if the central bank is getting all this gold but decides not to print money? Well, then they're not sort of playing by the implicit rules of the game that uh, countries were supposed to, even though those rules were never sort of formally written down. And so France began accumulating gold but not inflating its money supply. And what that means is that there's no natural self-correction that process will just continue. France will continue to attract gold because the exports will be competitive relative to uh, uh, other countries, and so those trade uh, imbalances won't naturally um, uh, correct themselves. There's a temptation to say, well, it's no big deal. It's just yellow metal going back and forth. We, We know that's not the source of wealth. It's not like France is getting wealthy by accumulating all this gold and England's getting poor. The problem was the impact that it had on prices and then economic activity. Right. So um, what that does is it imparted a tremendously deflationary monetary policy onto the rest of the world. So it wasn't just Britain that was losing gold. It was other countries as well. And essentially, France uh, was draining gold from the rest of the world and um, not inflating, uh, but forcing other countries to deflate. And so... You know, if there had been this balance that France was inflating, other countries are deflating, then it sort of all works out, and on average, world prices won't change. But if France is sort of staying put, and other countries are pursuing more deflationary policies, then you get sort of this worldwide deflationary spiral. Um, first question that comes to mind is, as you tell the story, which is, um, you know, we're talking about this in a very um, casual way. We're, we're chatting about this as if we're getting ready for some kind of introductory lecture on how the gold standard works. And there's a horrible tragedy here, of course, which is that this decision by France helped precipitate a worldwide depression that has never been rivaled in modern times, which in turn, as you quote Robert Mundell talking about, helped create the the rise of the Nazis, the stress on the world political system, and ultimately, um, World War II. I mean, it's just it's a this is not a, just a parlor game of economic policy um, minutia. It's a it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. So one wonders at the time was this the first time a nation had not played by the rules? Was France 
knowingly doing this and punishing its neighbors? Why would they why would they do this? Hadn't other countries done it before and other mechanisms been observed? Surely this was not a a surprise or a how how hidden was it in contemporary times? Well, there are a lot of uh, issues in that question, and it's an absolutely fascinating one. Let me just read the Mundell quote, which I have uh, in front of me. And you're absolutely right. The magnitude, you know, these sound like very, you know, small technical yeah, how decisions. Could, and how could how France, could, it's just one little country. I mean, what's the draining gold from the rest of the world? Come on. Right. Uh, well, here's what Mundell said. Had the price of gold been raised in the late 1920s, or alternatively, had the major central banks pursued policies of price stability instead of adhering to the gold standard, there would have been no Great Depression, no Nazi Revolution, and no World War II. When you think about the magnitude of uh, the worldwide impact of these decisions, um, it's just absolutely astounding to think how history could have been rewritten uh, if we had not gone through this period. I mean, you know, Milton Friedman famously said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomena. And sort of taking the converse, deflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomena. And world prices fell 30%. Uh, within just two or three years of their peak in 1929. How is it possible that that, uh, that took place? Well, France was started out as a very small player, and uh, in 1927, they only had 7% of the world's gold reserves. So in 1927, they had 7% of the world's gold reserves. By 1932, just five years later, they had 27% of the world's gold reserves. So they really were truly and literally pulling gold out from from the rest of the world, um, and uh, and I think they were, you know, well, I, I do some calculations. How much were they responsible for this price deflation? Now, the question is, you know, did people know this was going on? Um, well, it took a little while, and once again, one of the reasons I, I wrote this paper and got into this issue is because, you know, just as we in the present crisis are saying, well, who saw this coming? Could we have averted this disaster? That's a great question, too, I think, with respect to the Great Depression. You know, who in 1927, 1928, 29 were saying, you know, we're going to experience tremendous deflation and this uh, rise in unemployment and the decline in output. Um, you know, Keynes didn't see it coming. A lot of uh, famous uh, economists at the time didn't see it coming. Yet, Castle did because he had uh, this view about the potential flaws of the gold standard. And there were a few others. But um, the I reason why... the France- Austrians were aware of it. I don't know the history well enough. We'll look, I'll look into that, but... Right. Um, so, you know, one reason why France's, uh, you know, policy stance was not so pronounced in 1927 or 28 is that um, the United States was sort of doing the opposite. The U.S. was shedding gold in those two years. We were lending a lot to the rest of the world. Sort of our, our share of the world gold stock was declining. Um, and we were sort of offsetting the French action. So in terms of the world economy as a whole, there's sort of no net change in uh, gold reserves. But what happens here is, and this is, comes from Friedman and Schwartz and, and many others, is the U.S. began to tighten monetary policy in 1928. Um, and uh, that sort of began to reinforce what France was doing. And that's why the policy decisions in 1928 really began, to, in terms of the gold flows, really had an impact on world prices starting in mid-1929. And it's absolutely remarkable that you see in Britain, France, the United States, all major countries, all prices began to fall uh, in mid-1929. Sort of it's a, a synchronized shock, um, and I think it's because of, of what's happening to the changes in gold reserves at this time. And let's digress for a minute because this is even, uh, I think, it's a bit not obvious. Uh, a little inflation is not the worst thing in the world. It is if it leads to bigger inflation, in particular if it leads to wide swings in the inflation rate because it makes it hard to plan for the future. Why is a little deflation and what ultimately became a lot, why is that such a bad thing? Why did that by itself uh, precipitate a problem? And, and, and to put it in modern terms, you know, people are very worried that – it's embarrassing I think to the state of economics today that people can't decide whether the biggest thing we need to worry about is deflation or inflation. <laughs> right. right? We, we should be able to agree on that. Part of the reason it's hard to know is that the Federal Reserve has massively increased reserves, but they're not being put into circulation. And at the same time, people are worried about uh, deflation then, 
And what's wrong with deflation? Why was that so bad? Nothing's wrong with a little deflation, particularly if it's anticipated. Yeah, that's the key. And so uh, Michael Bordo has done uh, a lot of work on this. And we did experience, you know, periods of deflation in the 19th century. And real output continued to uh, go up. And uh, unemployment remained relatively low. And people, you know, sort of either anticipated uh, a lot of these changes because they knew what was happening to gold stocks, or um, it just wasn't that much of a problem. But when prices fall 10% a year and no one expects them to, and you uh, introduce some nominal rigidities or uh, nominal debt burdens, um, that can lead to problems. So let's just consider those two uh, in in turn. Um, If a firm all of a sudden discovers that the price of its output has fallen by 10%, um, but its wages, uh, it can't cut wages by 10%, then uh, it's going to um, not be as profitable and it's going to have to reduce output. And so until the wages can sort of catch up to the prices, uh, they're going to be sort of uh, playing a losing game in terms of uh, whether they're going to be earning profits and expanding or, or whether they're going to be shedding workers and contracting. That presumes that there's some, as you said, rigidity. There's some, either they've made a contract a longer-term contract with their workers so they can't – literally can't adjust it or workers are culturally struggle to accept a lower wage even though they've got lower prices. So they're really just going to – they're going to be better off if the wage drop isn't as big as the price drop, right? So right. it is – there has to be something – a rigidity there. Absolutely. And a lot of uh, economic historians have sort of uh, – and a lot of economists have sort of said, well, the reason why the 19th century worked out all right in terms of deflation is that – Wages were pretty flexible, but by the 1920s, they were much less so. And I think that's a little bit anecdotal. I think economic historians have tried to pin that down, but sort of hard to find the mechanism. Obviously, unions would be one mechanism where you get the contracts and and they would strike and resist downward uh, uh, wage movements. And certainly, that was the case in Britain. Uh, One of the reasons why uh, Keynes didn't want uh, deflation is that there was the general strike in 1926, which he said was... uh, directly the result of, of the decision that uh, Churchill made to repeg at the wrong rate uh, because workers just would strike and, and not accept uh, wage, wage cuts. But even if we sort of accept, you know, put the wage issue aside, um, uh, Irving Fisher, the great Yale economist of this time, had the debt deflation theory of the, de- of the Depression. And we said, well, uh, all sorts of uh, nominal debts are incurred uh, mortgages, um, loans, bank loans, and things of that sort. Nominal meaning uh, the amount is just fixed contractually that I borrowed two hundred thousand dollars. Exactly, and uh, if your, uh, you know, prices of your output go down, if your wages go down, that uh, maintaining, uh, you know, paying that uh, that debt off becomes much more difficult. Um, you know, so if you're earning, to use your example, if you have a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage, and uh, you know your wages drop, all of a sudden that that paying off that mortgage becomes much more difficult for you. And what that does is it puts people under financial distress. You get um, defaults. Uh, when you know, people de- begin to default on their loans, that puts pressure on the banks. They have a lot of non-performing loans, so they want to increase their reserves. They want to cut back in lending. They raise lending standards. And you sort of begin to get this uh, tightness in the financial system that sort of reinforces uh, the initial downward turn. And so the 20s, which were a time of, of great economic growth after the sharp but short recession of, uh, was it 1921? Yep, 21, 22. Uh, so in that post, in the mid through late 20s, the roaring, so-called roaring 20s, we got a lot of, we have a big expansion of debt. We have a big um, increase in stock market investment, right? So people are not unlike recent times. In America, right? A lot of people are living beyond their means because they figure, well, we'll we'll be able to handle it, right? And uh, you know, it's, it's there are parallels with the housing crisis because you know people had you know pretty large uh, high mortgages. If housing prices fall and people's incomes sort of stagnate, then they they can't afford to refinance or they can't afford to make payments. Um, then you know that leads to banking problems, um, and housing prices don't adjust instantaneously. And what have you? So, uh, is, is much more widespread in the nineteen uh, late nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties, rather than just one sector. So, going back to my earlier question, which was part of too many other pieces, uh, what was France thinking? Why did they do this? And 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 you do give examples where people said, "Hey, this is you got to stop." 
Right. So the British were very much aware of this, um, and uh, and so they were putting pressure on France uh, to sort of change its policies. Um, it's a little bit hard to know, uh, and, and there are actually books on French monetary policy during this period, uh, one by Kenneth Moray, uh, actually two by him. He's at the University of California, Santa Barbara, are excellent studies. And I guess the best way to put it is uh, French politicians, French central bankers had been traumatized by the inflation that they endured in uh, 1924-25 uh, until they stabilized things in 1926. And they absolutely wanted to make sure that they didn't, uh, you know, it led to political problems, social unrest, and what have you. And they want to absolutely make sure that they didn't repeat that. Um, they wanted, so they had a very strong anti-inflation stance. What, from our current vantage point, might seem uh, extreme, uh, uh, but um, because you know prices actually began to fall a lot in the early 1930s, and yet they still were worried about inflation. They didn't want to inflate, and so <clears throat> they were very cautious about how they treated their gold reserves. And uh, they restricted the ability of the central bank to undertake open market operations and expand the money supply, legal restrictions. And uh, they didn't want the, uh, the central bank monetizing the government's debt. And so uh, partly as a result of policy choices and decisions made, partly because of legal restrictions on the central bank, uh, they found it very difficult to monetize. Well, they didn't want to monetize the gold inflows that they got. Is there perhaps a public choice story here that political pressure by French exporters may have played a role? You know, I just don't know that much about the details of what was going on in France during this period. I, I think I'd have to look at those books by Moray uh, a bit more detail to figure that out. Uh, you know, always, to me, there's a public choice uh, explanation lurking behind any major policy decision. Um, and certainly, I think to the decision to undervalue the franc initially uh, reflected some of that. Um, but, uh, you know, the British basically thought the French were being pig-headed, and the French thought that the British uh, simply weren't uh, willing to deflate enough. They thought, well, if you're worried about gold outflows, then raise your interest rates and, and cut back uh, on your uh, uh, issuance of, of credit and money. Um, and the British said, you know, well, we're already in a pretty severe recession. We don't want to intensify that. Uh, why don't you ease up a bit? And uh, there was just very little uh, cooperation between the two. But certainly um, a, a few economists on the outside sort of were aware of this. Keynes didn't learn about it until he had sort of read Castle. Uh, but then he was brought into some of these discussions. But he really didn't think that um, you know, the discussions would get very far in terms of trying to get France to change its policies. How was France doing in this period, 28 to 32? France was doing all right because they, they uh, didn't have to – they didn't go through a, a serious deflation yet. Um, because they had uh, these gold reserves and they didn't have to contract their money supply. They had uh, excess reserves. In fact, another one of the uh, striking pictures that uh, I sort of uh, came up with in, in writing this paper is something called the cover ratio, which is uh, sort of how many uh, um, gold reserves do you have per uh, central bank liability or how much money you've issued. And it started out at about 35 or 40 percent for France in 1928. In other words, for every... Uh, um, uh, Frank, they had sort of issued, they had uh, you know, 35% of that uh, in, in the central bank uh, vaults um, due to, you know, sort of fractional uh, uh, money, monetary system. Uh, but that rose to almost 80%, once again, within three or four years. They were just holding many, much more gold reserves than they needed, given how many francs they'd, they had issued. Unbelievable. So, Lau, let's put this in uh, economic history perspective. Uh, Friedman and Schwartz in 1962, 62, 63, come out with the monetary history of the United States, and they point the finger correctly at a failure of U.S. monetary policy starting in 1928 that was highly contractionary, um, and then a failure in the subsequent years to recognize that there was uh, deflation and, and that the central bank failed to respond by uh, loosening. And so a lot of people correctly, I think, although there's a debate about it still, uh, blame the United States for precipitating the worldwide depression through pigheadedness or stupidity or ignorance, whatever you want to call it, um, just a failure to fully understand the ramifications of, of the decisions they were making. And your story is that that's actually, although true, not as big a story, as big a part of the story as we thought. 
Well, I, you know, I, I sort of uh, buy the broad contours of that story very much, and I'm a huge fan of Friedman and Schwartz. But I've always the reason I wrote this paper is I always scratched my head. Well, how could the U.S. single-handedly cause this worldwide economic disaster um, due to a little bit of a tightening of monetary policy in 28, or, or perhaps a, a major tightening in 28? Um, you know, is it is that you know is that credible? Um, and what I discovered in reading more on this, and actually, there's you know. Not much that's original in my paper in the sense that uh, people have already known that France was doing similar things, but they tend to downplay or sort of ignore the French contribution relative to the American contribution. So in histories of the, the worldwide Great Depression, uh, there will be five or ten pages on this initial uh, Federal Reserve decision in 1928 and how that caused all sorts of problems, and then maybe in a footnote or in just a sentence or two and say, you know, France was doing this too. And what I sort of was able to calculate is that the deflationary impact on the world economy coming from France uh, matched, if not exceeded, that of the United States. Um, and so it may have been a small player in 26, 27, but uh, by 28, 29, it has accumulated so many gold, so, such a large quantity of the world's gold reserves that it actually was a major player in influencing the course of world prices. You have a footnote. Uh, I, I, we talked about this a little bit uh, uh, before we uh, got on the phone, is that uh, Milton Friedman himself, uh, in the early 1990s, I believe, uh, uh, read uh, the uh, um, uh, memoirs of the central bank governor of France during this period, and uh, he actually wrote in a forward to a reissue of that those memoirs that if he had been uh, sort of fully focused and fully aware of what France was doing, uh, his monetary history would have been a little bit different. They would have laid equal blame on France and not just put the, the burden on the Federal Reserve and, and the United States. So... What this, what this implies is that through the pursuit of policies that we can't fully understand the motivation for by the French government, they imposed a massive deflation on the rest of the world with the consequence of spiraling downward through these mechanisms we talked about earlier and a massive contraction in world output. Um, you want to add anything to that? Uh, the one link that I, I, I haven't fully established and I still, still think is a little bit of a puzzle for all scholars of the Great Depression is um, the focus of my paper is on who is putting the, pressure, the downward pressure on prices and uh, who is responsible for the great contraction in the world money supply and in world prices. And I'm sort of trying to apportion that between France and the U.S. and, and other factors. Sort of the next link is sort of one you've hinted at is well, just because prices fell by 30%, why does output fall by 20 or 30%? And um, that's still sort of, uh, I'm not sure it's an open question, but I think still there's fruitful work to be done in sort of establishing that link. Is it the case that every country that uh, uh, experienced a, a massive deflation also experienced uh, a massive uh, contraction in real output and, a, and a, an increase in unemployment? Um, so that, that's sort of the link, but you, you trying to establish the link between deflation and huge declines in output. But as you pointed out earlier, China and Spain, which were not on the gold standard, I assume did not – you said they had mild recessions because their trading partners were crippled. But did they have deflation? They did not. Uh, uh, certainly, I've seen the data for Spain. They did not endure – they did not have a big deflation, and they did not have a big reduction in, uh, in output. Um, industrial production was sort of flat or slightly up during this period, um, whereas industrial production is collapsing around uh, the rest of the world. So it's pretty clear that there is a link um, between uh, deflation and, and, and uh, decline in output. And the question is, you know, how, how is that taking place? Is it nominal rigidities? Is it uh, sort of disintermediation in the credit system? Sort of Bernanke's done some work on that. Or, you know, what are exactly the mechanisms that bring that about? And so talk about how this interacts with what we might call the real side effects. So there are a lot of other things happening, of course, so you have to always be careful you're not Confusing correlation and causation. You've got uh, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. Uh, so suddenly there's a, uh, a set of moves by the United States and other countries to limit international trade between nations, which is impoverishing. You have a Keynesian story about animal spirits that people suddenly got scared and, and decided to save more and that that was the reason that we suffered a contraction. How do you link – or deal with the fact that there's lots of other stuff going on 
and maybe this monetary stuff is is more the result of these other real side effects. Well, I sort of go back to, and just in terms of the def, explaining the deflation per se, uh, I sort of go back and fall back on Milton Friedman's aphorism that deflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So certainly animal spirits uh, and uh, the, the Smoot-Hawley tariff, Smoot-Hawley tariff in, in particular was slightly deflationary in the sense that it was attracting gold to the United States at the expense of the rest of the world. But when you look at the magnitudes of that effect, it's really pretty small because uh, the trade balance or imbalance at that time was was relatively small. The, the impact on trade was just not enough to sort of cause a 30% implosion in world prices. Uh, so you sort of come back to sort of the gold standard and the, and the, the central bank policies of the, of the, of the time. Um, then still the question is, you know, what other things, what other real shocks are is the country, uh, our country's enduring that uh, might be pushing down uh, real output as well, besides just the deflation. And that's where I think, you know, we still don't have a, a, a solid answer on that. We we did a podcast earlier with Tom Stacey where he argued that that the Smoot-Hawley tariff, although not sufficient to explain output drops by via trade flows, may have contributed and exacerbated the monetary issue because farmers suddenly couldn't export goods, then they couldn't repay their loans that they'd made for the equipment they borrowed, which meant that banks in agricultural states, for example, struggled to stay solvent, and that that spiraling downward uh, further worsened the monetary situation. Right. In fact, Alan Meltzer sort of proposed that, too, as the, as the real way that Smoot-Hawley sort of um, you know, brought harm to the U.S. and the world economy. Um, in fact, there was a sharp rise in bank failures in the late 1930s, but what Meltzer... In the late 19... Late 1930s, sort of right after... So Smoot-Hawley takes effect in June of 1930, and U.S. agricultural crops you know, uh, uh, sort of are harvested in the, in the fall of 1930. Um, and there were a bunch of bank failures, particularly in the south and agricultural re- regions in the, the late, 1930, uh, late, ni- late 1930. Um, but there's also a, a severe drought during that year. Right. So then you have to disentangle the, the drought effect from the, the uh, sort of tariff effect. And, uh, you know, one reason why I'm a little bit skeptical about that argument in terms of its, its uh, empirical power to explain a lot is that um, when we look at cotton, for example, cotton production fell, presumably because of the drought, um, but domestic demand fell a lot more because of the recession. And so our, actually our, our share of our uh, crops that we were exporting went up. Um, mm. In other words, foreign demand didn't decline as much as domestic demand. That's interesting. So, you know, uh, there's probably something there, I think, that's certainly worth investigating more, but I'm not sure it's going to be strong enough to sort of have this independent uh, huge effect on, on deflation during this period or on the on monetary policy stance. So I encourage listeners to take a look at Doug's paper, which, as I said, we'll put a link to, where you can see a lot of um, quantif- quantification of these the stories he's telling. He tries to estimate the impact of France, and he tries to estimate what prices would have been had France not pursued this policy. There's a lot of a very um, – some challenging, but a lot of accessible empirical work that Doug's done that, that a general reader would understand and enjoy looking at. But let's come to the present. Uh, inflation and deflation may be everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. The question arises as I think about the depression and I think about the current crisis, is the business cycle everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon? How much of the swings in, um, in economic activity and the malaise that we're in the middle of right now how much of that's due to just bad monetary policy and a failure to fully understand the consequences of policy mistakes? Well, that's a, a hugely important question, and I'm not uh, an expert on this, and I'm not a macroeconomist. I tend to concentrate on economic history and international trade policy. But I, you know, I guess my waffling answer would be there's there's got to be some bo- both involved, um, and probably in the most recent episode. Um, and, and even to a, a small extent, the Great Depression as well. I mean, when the stock market crashed in 1929, uh, Christine, Christina Romer has shown that you know consumers got a little bit spooked and they held back on their uh, consumption of durable uh, consumer goods. And so that's sort of independent of monetary policy. Um, but it, but the question is, how big is that really to explain the, the size of the fluctuations observed during that period? So um, you know. I think there's a role for both, but I think whenever you get sort of really enormous shocks, such as a 30% deflation, um, just uh, you know, appealing to a non-monetary explanation is going to be very difficult. 
Any implications you want to suggest for monetary policy going forward? I was struck by the – you were talking about Cassell, the 1920s uh, economist who who said, you know, the idea would be for gold to grow at a 3% rate because that would be roughly equal to the increase in productivity uh, that the society and population growth and that would thereby lead to stable prices and stable prices – are good because it lets people plan for the future and then nominal versus real changes don't have the impact we talked about earlier of that debt deflation spiral. Um, when you mentioned that, I immediately thought of Milton Friedman who pursued uh, for much of his life, advocated a 3% money rule that the Federal Reserve should just simply even, potentially even be run by a computer and, and make try to keep the growth of monetary the monetary base or some other monetary aggregate within a a range close to 3%. Um, John Taylor, we've had on the program, has a different discipline, the Taylor rule, which says the Fed should follow a policy that is uh, responds to changes in growth and changes in inflation. And all of these are suggestions that wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be nice if prices were stable? And we can't seem to get there either because – Politically, we can't restrain ourselves or it's too difficult. Um, any ideas on how we might do better down the road? Well, actually, I think we have done reasonably well through this uh, crisis as opposed to the Great Depression because we've managed to avoid uh, uh, a huge deflation. And I think, you know, a lot of people are worried about inflation, the cost of inflation. I think sort of a lot of the historical record shows that big deflations are just as disruptive, just as uh, nasty as, as big inflations. Obviously, you want to avoid the, the wide swings and avoid the extremes, and that's why Friedman and Castle and others have always counseled monetary stability. Um, you know, it's really a shame that Milton Friedman isn't here to sort of comment on, on current policy because I think it would be absolutely fascinating to get his view. In particular, I've talked to a number of uh, former students of Friedman and trying to get a sense for whether he would have thought that monetary policy is too tight today or too loose. Um, is fascinating, and I find it's it's divided some of his his uh, students and, and scholars of his work that they they're not exactly sure. I I tend to lean towards Scott Sumner's view that I think things are too tight. Uh, we've got consumer price inflation that is basically zero over the past nine months. Uh, the year over year rate is only about one percent. It's been falling, um, and as Sumner points out, low nominal interest rates don't indicate monetary ease. They indicate sort of very tight money. And, uh, you know, maybe there's still room for the Fed to sort of uh, accommodate and help the economy out. But others look at sort of the balance sheet, and they just get spooked by the, they're saying there's sort of pent-up uh, inflation here, and we're going to have very high rates in the future if, if we don't begin to tighten now. Um, once again, I'm not uh, an expert in this area, but I think it's a fascinating debate to watch, and um, it's a very important one. You know, we've had um, Scott Sumner talking about that on the program, and, and as well as Al Meltzer. What I find difficult as a um, an amateur who's not a specialist in monetary policy as well, um, we were taught as if there were a a almost engineering hydraulic. This goes back to Irving Fisher relationship between monetary policy and prices. After all, inflation, deflation. Are, always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That's true. There's no – I think few economists dispute that. What seems to me to be difficult is that there's a slip between the cup and the lip that um, we like to sort of wave our hands over, which is sometimes the, the citizenry has an idea about what how much money they want to hold, and that isn't public knowledge, and the Fed struggles to see it, and then they see it too late. That's one problem. The second problem is the problem we're in right now. I don't know if it's a problem, but it's a reality that in the idea that that monetary expansion could always stimulate the economy, and yet the monetary expansion we've seen has not stimulated. The, I mean, people argue about this, but there's no doubt that banks are not lending the money that they've that the Fed has injected into their system. They're holding excess reserves, and so that's why we're not getting the inflation we would normally expect from enormous injections of reserves that we've seen, but it calls into question the very mechanism that economists, particularly monetary economists, argue is the way that the Fed can offset the business cycle swings. And um, 
I don't understand how that's going to be uh, repaired. I don't get it. I don't think we fully understand that mechanism. Well, once again, we're sort of in an economic extreme situation, and we aren't in these very often. And so sort of identifying how uh, various mechanisms work is, is we just don't have a lot of historical experience with that. You know, I tend to not think that we are in a liquidity trap. I think there is still scope for the Fed to do a lot more. Um, but I, I can sort of also see why people think that that's not going to be the case. But, um, you know, Robert Hetzel at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond uh, Scott Sumner at Bentley, um, and other people have sort of looked at, you know, was there a liquidity trap in the 30s? Even though nominal interest rates were very low, there was still scope for monetary expansion and the, the um, Fed doing well. So one example that, uh, you know, uh, people have studied is uh, <coughs> Congress essentially forced the Fed to start undertaking open op- market operations in early 1932, uh, even though interest rates were, were very low. Lo and behold, uh, they were able to uh, increase the money supply, increase the monetary base at, at least, and uh, there seemed to be uh, signs of a recovery. Um, but they aborted this uh, effort to expand the money supply in the summer of 1932. It only lasted for a few months, and then the economy began to slip back. So that's, I think, something that uh, Friedman Schwartz have noted and a lot of other people in terms of there's sort of a natural experiment. Uh, could uh, you know, monetary policy help the economy in a period of tremendous deflation when you have enormous slack in terms of uh, resource utilization? And the answer was yes. And we're sort of in that environment today. Uh, there's tremendous slack in the system. There's no uh, inflation uh, present or on the horizon. And, uh, you know, M2 growth is at a very low uh, rate, uh, historically speaking. And so there, there, uh, there is uh, scope for more action, I think. The question then would be, since unemployment is extremely high, why isn't the Fed doing anything? They keep saying, oh, we can, we can, we could. You know, we have plenty of bullets left. And I'm, I'm willing to accept the potential that you're talking about. Puzzle is, why aren't they firing, you know? Um, well, that's exactly the same question that uh, people asked in the 1930s about the Federal Reserve and the Bank of France and what have you. Why aren't you doing something? And the, the answer of the Bank of France was, well, we're worried about inflation. Yeah. And the answer of the Federal Reserve was, well, there's sort of no demand for credit. The Fed, as Alan Meltzer shows in his history of the Federal Reserve, was adhering to a real bills doctrine where they weren't going to issue uh, more credit if there wasn't what they perceived as the demand for it. And so they were happy to to not uh, try any expansionary policy. So between the fear of inflation and and the the idea that their sort of uh, monetary policy authorities are impotent, that was an excuse for inaction. And um, and that's sort of what is recurring to some extent uh, today. My guest today has been Douglas Irwin. Doug, thanks for being part of EconTalk. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.